0: As you sit, you can turn with me to Luke 23. we have finally finished chapter 22 after a long, long time. We're going to be in Luke 23 verses 1 through 12. And as you do that, I'm going to start with a question. Have you ever wanted something accomplished but couldn't do it yourself? And when you find yourselves in that situation, what do you do? A lot of times what we do is we get help from someone that can do it, or we get help from someone that can at least help us to do it. When we first moved here, now almost four years ago, Brooklyn was one year old, and we were transitioning her away from using her pacifier. And so we had gotten to where she could not have it during the day, she could only have it when she went to bed at night. And of course, Brooklyn knew where those pacifiers were, she couldn't reach them, and she knew that she couldn't ask us to help because we weren't going to get it to her until it was time for bed. But the nature of this job has the youth events at our house or young adult events at our house all the time. And so when those would happen, Brooklyn wouldn't come to us, but she would come to Ty or to Emma or to Kyler, and she would bring them in and and point up at that pacifier, and our youth or our young adults trying to be helpful would, would give her the pacifier. And then she'd come down the hall, and we'd say, hey, where'd you get that? And you know, one, whoever it was that helped them said, oh, I, she asked for it. I thought I was helping. She knew she wasn't supposed to have it. She knew who to not go to, and she knew exactly who to go to in order to get what she couldn't do for herself. As we look in our passage today, Jesus had just emerged at dawn from his religious trial before the Sanhedrin, where its enraged members had concluded that he must die. His admission that he was the Son of God was blasphemous to them, and it launched them into a murderous rage. And they would have killed him outright, but they lacked the political power to do so. The right to inflict capital punishment had been taken from them by the occupying Romans. And so they went to the person that could get them exactly what they wanted because they could not do it on their own. And so a political trial under secular Roman authority and law was necessary. Thus comes the most infamous trial in history that began before Pilate, the Roman politician, and then detoured to the tetrarch Herod and finally returns to Pilate where the awful judgment was rendered. And so, we're going to read Luke 23, 1 through 12. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation." and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Dear God, as we come to your word this morning, God, I pray that you you open up our eyes to it. God, I pray that you speak through me, that you help me as I preach this sermon, um, that you help us as as we look to your word, to see what you were saying way back in its original context, but also, God, help us to see the application of this passage to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here, we look at Jesus, an innocent man, the only sinless man. We see Pilate ignoring his conscience, avoiding doing what was right in order to get out of an uncomfortable situation or for an uncomfortable situation to just not occur. We see Herod continuing to ignore his conscience and mocking Jesus as a result. And we get as we get to this trial, it is really important that we have some background on Herod. It's going to be key for us as we see his actions in this passage. And so, As we look over to Mark chapter 6, we see some history with Herod and John the Baptist. See, Herod Antipas um, is the one who, along with his wife Herodias, had come under fire by John the Baptist. Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, making her Herod's niece. And on top of this, she was married to Herod's other half-brother, Herod Philip. This is a it's a messy story. But Herod seduces his sister-in-law slash niece and persuaded her to leave her husband and become his wife. Now, in case you were wondering, this is absolutely not allowed under Jewish law. It was not okay. And John the Baptist wasn't one to just shy away from seeing evil and just be like, ah, it's not my problem. I'm not gonna say anything. And so he bluntly told them that. This is wrong. And as you might have guessed. Herodias didn't like that at all. She held a grudge against him. And for doing this so publicly, Herod has John the Baptist put in prison. Well, Herodias wants him dead. But Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, so he kept him safe. But Herodias is evil, and she comes up with a plan. At Herod's birthday, he had a banquet. And she knew that as the drinking continued, the mood would become increasingly sensual. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And this is actually worse than it sounds. It sounds bad, but this is actually worse because dancing for Herod and his guests would have been normal for court dancers and prostitutes. But Herodias put forth her own daughter. This was absolutely unheard of among women of rank. Herod, pleased by this, tells her to ask for anything she wishes, and she can have it. And and he seals this, promises this, with a vow. Well, the trap was set. Herodias told her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist. Herod realizes his mistake, but it's too late. And at this point, he was in genuine grief, and really this grief is why I tell this story, because it's such a difference in what we see in Herod in our passage. In fact, the Greek word that is used here appears only one other time in the New Testament to describe Jesus' pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. His conscience is speaking to Him, but then, what would His friends think? What would walking back on this do to His reputation, to His honor, so, he silenced his conscience, and he gives Herodias what she wanted, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Later, though John was dead, Jesus' ministry was flourishing. People were seeing his miracles. They were seeing him ministering his power. His, they were seeing him heal people, call out demons. And eventually, word about Jesus crept into the palace. We see in Mark 6, 14 through 16, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And the language here is, graphic. The I is emphatic in the Greek. I am the one. I did it. The sense is that he said it again and again. He was worried. Now, we all have sinned and wished that we had it. We've all sinned and and wished that it would just go away, you know, pretended that You know, it would just, it never happened. And that's our temptation. Our temptation is to pretend that it didn't happen, to push it away. But when we sin, it is so important that we don't do that, that we don't just push it away, that we don't just ignore our conscience. What it should call us to is repentance. And here we see Herod's conscience at work, but there was no repentance. There was no radical turning. There was just speculation that Jesus was somehow John returned from the dead. And as we get to him, we will see just how far down he pushed that conviction that he had once felt. The beginning of our passage, we see Jesus and Pilate. After Jesus had been found guilty in a religious trial, the Sanhedrin frantically pushed for political judgment as they rushed Jesus over to Pilate and then, unexpectedly, to Herod. They wanted to kill Jesus then, but again, they had that problem. The Romans had conquered Israel, and because the Jews were under Roman occupation, they couldn't carry out a death sentence themselves. Only Rome could do that. So, they sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over the region of Judea. And just to get a little um, detail about <laughs> of, uh, the character of Pilate, Philo of Alexandria described him his corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending, gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. It sounds like a great guy. Because of this, they knew this, they knew, Her- uh, they knew Pilate's character. Because of this, they had every reason to expect a favorable result when they sent Jesus over to Pilate. Surely, Pilate would put Jesus to death. But the religious leaders also knew that Pilate would be completely unconcerned with the accusation of blasphemy before the religious council. He wouldn't care. It, It had nothing to do with him. And so, they needed to come up with something that would make him care, that would make this his problem, that would make him want to act so, they send Jesus to Pilate and they do this with three false accusations. All of these serious crimes were, if true, they would have compelled Pilate to take action in order to protect Rome's interest. And of course, all of them false. The first was that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he was perverting the nation. Now, this was a bald-faced lie, There was no hint of sedition in any of Jesus' teachings. But they come with this one first. The second is that Jesus incited the people not to pay their taxes, that He was forbidding the people to pay their taxes to Caesar. Again, this is a lie. This is not at all what Jesus meant when He said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then third, They said that Jesus claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, we know that he is, but not in the politicized sense in which they were charging him. The context is key there. And so, what they tried to do was they tried to put Pilate into an awkward position to say, hey, if you don't condemn Jesus, you are being unloyal to Caesar. Now, Jesus is beaten and bloody standing before him, and he didn't look especially royal as he stood before Pilate. And Pilate sees through their accusations, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you have said so. Literally, you say it. It is you who say this. Jesus was serenely casual almost nonchalant. And so Pilate rendered his initial verdict. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate was cruel, and he was ruthless, but he wasn't stupid. He could see that Jesus was harmless. This was was easy to see. Case closed. And it should have ended there. Pilate decides that Jesus is innocent and he wants to release him, but the religious leaders respond by claiming that Jesus is causing trouble all throughout Judea and Galilee. And it's a frantic, indefinite charge. And Pilate could see, this situation is getting kind of crazy. These people are riled up. We're going to have a riot on our hands. They had no interest in justice. All they wanted was for Pilate to accommodate their hatred. They had no case. There was no valid evidence whatsoever. There were no witnesses. All that was left was for them to try to intimidate Pilate into pronouncing Jesus guilty and executing him. Pilate was trapped. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He was also afraid of him as we see in John 19, 7 through 9, because of his supernatural powers. But Pilate was also clearly intimidated by the possibility that the Jewish leaders would cause him trouble with Caesar, as they would soon threaten to do when we see that also in John 19, verse 12. But their mention of Galilee gave him an out. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So this is perfect. This the situation is not good. Jesus is is innocent, and Pilate has a responsibility to enact justice here, but at the same time, he really doesn't care about Jesus very much. And now the crowd is, is getting wild getting angry. Now he has this out. And so he passes the buck to Herod. It was now Herod's problem. And it's really important as we look at this passage, as we look at our lives, that we are careful to not be blind to the truth of the Scriptures. Because the people were here. They were blinded by their hatred, by their greed, by their sin, definitely by their being called out on their sin. They were blinded by their tradition. To the point that they were going to do and are doing whatever it took to have Jesus condemned to death, to see that threat and to silence it. They know He's not guilty. They know that these accusations are false. But they wanted Jesus dead, and they were going to do what they needed to do to accomplish that. We just last weekend... Took uh, our students to a youth retreat at Ridgecrest, Ridgecrest, over in the mountains of North Carolina, and it, it was such a great retreat. All the teaching was just spot on. The worship was spot on, and they were talking about how to navigate life as a, a youth or a young adult uh, in the world that we live in. That is is so against Christianity that is full of distractions where you just have screens in our faces all the time. We have all of these distractions. We have all of these chances to choose our emotions and our desires and what we want over the Lord and to blind ourselves. Because if we blind ourselves to the Lord's teachings, we fit right in in our culture. And this is definitely true now, but this has always been a problem. This has always been a temptation. It is so easy for what happened to them to happen to us today, right now. It's also really easy to do what Pilate did to see an uncomfortable situation, to see a chance to do what is right, and to look for a way out because it's uncomfortable to stand by while the world does its thing and to let it happen and to empower it to happen because we don't say anything. We must be intentional about our walk with the Lord. We must be intentional about standing for the Word of the Lord. We must take it seriously because if our priority is not on God, then we too will be blinded by the same things that the chief priests and the scribes were blinded by by the same things that our world is blinded by right now, our greed and our sin and our desires and us over everyone else. We, too, will do what we need to do in order to keep it that way, and we, too, will ignore what is right for our own comfort. We won't care about the things that matter. We will care about ourselves When we take the priority of our lives off of the Lord and put it onto ourselves, it snowballs and it destroys us. So, we must be vigilant. Here in this passage, Pilate, he sends Jesus over to Herod. He passes him off, he avoids the anger of the crowd, and Herod is thrilled, of course for the wrong reason. We see in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see Him because he had heard about Him and he was hoping to see some sign done by Him. Herod had no spiritual interest whatsoever in seeing Jesus. For him, it was showtime. He was not even interested in seeing Jesus prove his claims by signs. He just wanted a show. That's it. His former spiritual interests, his conscience, it it just evaporated. Now there was no fear, no fear at all. All that he felt was this excited anticipation of, of the chance to see some new tricks. His murder of John had produced an incapacity to see anything in Jesus. At one time, Herod had expressed some religious interest. He heard the word of God from John the Baptist, but he didn't repent. He continued in his sin, and he hardened his heart more and more and more against God and against His word. Herod became dead to conscience, and at this point, all he cares about is the show. He just wants the show from Jesus. Now, Jesus gives no response to Herod whatsoever. Verse 9 says, he questioned him at some length, but he gave no answer. The phrase he questioned in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, indicating that Herod conducted a lengthy interrogation. He was enjoying it. He was having fun. Jesus was willing to reason with the scoundrel high priest Caiaphas and even to prophesy to him. Jesus conversed with Pilate. He gave him some great substance for thought. Jesus grieved over Judas as he tenderly reached out for his soul in the upper room. But this same Jesus maintained a dreadful silence before Herod. Because Herod's day of grace was already over. Herod had stifled his conscience long before, and now it could not respond. Charles Spurgeon said, Herod thought, let's hear an answer from the great teacher. Let's see a miracle from the miracle man. Jesus may have thought in response, I have nothing for you, the murderer of my cousin, John the Baptist. He who answered blind beggars when they cried for mercy is silent to a prince who only seeks to gratify gratify his own irreverent curiosity. Jesus' silence is matched by Herod's appalling dismissal. He stood face to face with the Son of God, Who is absolute righteousness and absolute goodness? And he saw nothing. Herod was so dead that he dressed up God in a robe so that he and his bodyguards could mock him. He held God in contempt. The chief priests and the scribes are so worried that Jesus might be released that all their efforts might be in vain that they launched all of these false accusations towards him. He was such a threat to them. Herod doesn't even take him seriously. And Jesus didn't say anything, so Herod and his soldiers ridicule and mock him. They send him back in robes befitting royalty, mocking who they think is the fake king. Completely blind, to the fact that he is the one and only true king. The Son of God is right there standing before Herod, and all Herod can do is mock him. We see in verse 12 as the passage closes that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other in all of this. Their friendship is reestablished in a conspiracy of evil. They fulfill Psalm 2 verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And Luke picks up this theme in Acts four twenty-seven and 28, saying, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The chief priests and the scribes and Pilate and Herod, they sat here in earthly authority. They felt like they were in control, that they were the ones making the decisions. They were scheming. But from God's perspective, Christ had to be executed by the Romans to fulfill prophecy. They had such a small view of God they had no clue how big our God is. They weren't in control at all. God was and is and will always be fully in control. Pilate and Herod were not in charge of determining Christ's destiny. That had already been predestined by God in eternity past. In reality, Jesus is the one who determines their eternal destinies. To this point, in Luke 23 shows us three different groups who hated and rejected Jesus. Because of fear and envy, the religious leaders hated Jesus. Pilate, he knew something of who Jesus was, but he was unwilling to make an unpopular stand for him. And Herod doesn't even take Jesus seriously. He was only interested in amusement and entertainment. What we see here is the result of a failure to repent over and over and over. Herod felt convicted several times before this. He viewed John the Baptist highly before he imprisoned him for calling out his sin. He felt extreme guilt for drunkenly promising to put him to death. But then he he did so in order to save his own reputation. He felt guilt afterwards. He suppressed it. And by the time that Jesus is before him, he had suppressed it to the point that he is just openly mocking Jesus. The Son of God is standing before him, and he makes a joke out of the whole thing and just sends him on back to Pilate. We look at this, and there is a big thing for us to see here. We must regularly repent of our sin, or it will devour us. It will overtake us. We see it in this passage with the chief priests and the scribes and the crowds and Pilate, and certainly with Herod. We do not want the same thing to be a reality for us. We do not want to be blind to Christ. It would be a complete and utter tragedy. It's so easy. I know I say it to our our youth and our young adults all the time, but it's it's so crazy or, or so easy to look at these characters in the Bible and to just be like astonished at their terrible actions, at the decisions that they make. And goodness, the youth are going through judges right now, so it's just terrible action after terrible. It's just, it's horrible. It's just crazy idol worship. It's like, how do you not get it at this point? We're in chapter 2, and we're already at, how do you not get it yet? We look at Israel. We look recently at Peter and his denying Jesus. We, We look at Herod and Pilate, and we're floored. But nothing has changed. We are still sinners in a lost world. We still do the same thing. One thing we do have is the benefit of learning from their failures. Herod is like so many people today. He longs to see Jesus perform miracles so that he can be astounded and amazed, but Jesus will do no such thing, and He says nothing to him. Jesus sees that Herod is completely uninterested in truth. He just wants a show. Well, the Lord does not reveal Himself to people who simply want to be entertained. Herod laughs at Jesus and mocks him, and he puts him in a robe, and he sends him back to Pilate and to his death. Herod doesn't realize that in sending Jesus away, he is actually signing his own death warrant. He laughs, and he makes fun of Jesus, but Herod is the one who is actually on his way to death. Jesus dies, and he rises again, but there is no evidence that Herod ever changes. He is face to face with the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, and he just mocks. He laughs. He makes a big joke and a big show out of the whole thing. He thinks he is so clever in putting a robe on Jesus. Yet we look at him today, we look at Herod, and appropriately, we look at Herod as an absolute fool. have you ever have you ever done something or had something to do that was just so obvious uh, like and what you were supposed to do then but then you just failed miserably? I remember back before my arm injury I was when I was playing baseball and I'm out in center field and I didn't make errors they just didn't happen i I, I this pop up hit, comes up and it's just shallow center field and I, I come and I run under it and I you know, have my thumb under my glove like that. And I'm, I'm going to catch it. It's just, it's right there. And then, ball's coming, and I look at our second baseman, Frankie Swaha. I don't know why. The ball is coming down. I'm up under it, and I just look at him. I'm just staring at him. And the ball comes down. It hits the ground, and I'm, honestly, I'm, I'm surprised it didn't hit me in the face. I don't know what I was doing. It made no sense. It was, the ball was right there. I just looked away. And I come into the dugout after the inning. David, what happened? It was so easy. It was right there. What did you do? I said, I don't know. I looked at Frankie. I don't know why. I ignored the ball. It was right in front of me. I just ignored it. I missed it, and it was so foolish. And sadly, I think about this a lot. But but it was so dumb. That is nothing compared to herod here the way to life and beauty and forgiveness is right in front of him and he looks away and he misses it he ignored his conscience repeatedly and he missed it entirely but it's also a big warning for us because we face that same temptation that temptation to elevate ourselves and to ignore our conscience to do what is right in our own eyes. And whenever we see, we see in Scripture a lot, again, with the youth and judges, we see that the people did what was right in their own eyes a lot. It's never good. We don't want to do what is right in our own eyes. We want to do what is right in the Lord's eyes, in His Word. But that temptation is so strong to elevate ourselves and to try to make God smaller. A great truth shouts for our attention in this story. The conscience is perishable. It is possible for a human being to be so jaded that they can stand face to face with Christ and feel nothing. And that's a real possibility for any non-believer. Most who descend to this level do not perform the outrages of Herod. Most non-believers do not verbalize their opposition. They're simply indifferent, feel nothing. We take our our students, uh, just were able to do it for the first time, but going this summer to our church planner in Philadelphia, Horizon Community Church, going with Alex Hanovich. And I love the chance to be able to have that connection with the church planner in the north because the north is, is such a part of me. And so it's great to be able to show our students this is This is the culture that I grew up in. This is what I grew up with. And I mean, things have changed over the years, but a lot of it is is still the same. And a lot of the the spiritual need is still the same. It's so strong because there is just such a... Now, there are some people that are just vehemently opposed. And when we go uh, to Philadelphia, we, we encounter that. But most of the people are just completely indifferent to the Lord. It doesn't the Lord doesn't impact their lives at all. God is something, you know, church is something that their grandparents went to, and they have nothing to do with. And if you are uh, are not a believer, if you presently like to listen to God's Word, if you have a reverence and a fear for God, don't be content to simply go on hearing His words. Do what His words tell you to do. Don't go on spiritually indifferent, feeling nothing. If you go on hearing the gospel but neglect it, you invite a fog over your eyes that in time will shut out the light. Respond now while the gospel impresses you, for a day may come when it no longer does. The silence of Jesus is an extreme and dramatic warning not to trifle with holy things, not to suppress the private appeals and suggestions of the Holy Spirit. As Psalm 95, 7 and 8 says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And for believers with us this morning, while it is impossible for the conscience of a true believer to become dead, it surely can be weakened. Those who do not hold a good conscience can become shipwrecked like Himanias and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1. Paul exhorted Timothy to maintain a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience is essential to spiritual vitality. We must submit our conscience to the informing light of God's Word and obey it. We cannot neglect any conviction of what we are to do without lowering the whole level of our character. And so if there is something that we are doing or saying, if there is an attitude that we ought to have, if Scripture and conscience are calling to us, we must hear and we must change. If we resist, the moral shudder may become less and less, and the Word of God dimmer and dimmer. As we close Let me encourage you, don't let that be a reality in your life. Call on Christ today. Be intentional about your walk with Jesus today. Submit to Him today. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to You this morning, and God, we pray that You help us to not worship ourselves and our desires, God, we pray that you help us to not ignore what is right for what is comfortable. God, we know that temptation is so strong. I know as I look at myself in my own life, there's always that temptation to avoid uh, anybody getting angry at me or whatever. I know that temptation is within myself, but God, I also know that my call to share the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word is strong, and I cannot ignore it. I know that is true for us as well. And so, God, we pray that you help us to worship you, to not worship our desires, to not worship our emotions as our world calls us to do, but to worship you and to worship, you know, the, the, the truth. You are truth and you are goodness. And God, we pray that we worship you alone, that we don't ignore your spirit stirring our conscience, as we know it is so easy to do. And as we see It's not a new temptation. This has been going on for thousands of years. So God, we pray that when we feel conviction from your spirit, God, that we repent and we turn to you. God, we pray that in our lives today and every day that you help us submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes up, I do just want to remind you, if you have questions, about the sermon, if you have questions about salvation, if you want to talk about that, we, we would love that. If the Lord has softened your heart and you have heard His voice, let today be the day of salvation. If you're here and you have something going on in your life and you just want prayer over that thing, myself and Pastor Ben are here. We would love to talk to you. We live for these conversations. So please, I know Pastor Ben will be at the Meet the Pastor table. I will be right here. We would love to talk to you. And also, if you're here, if you're watching on the live stream or you don't get a chance to talk to us, you can email or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. Um, but we would love to pray for you, pray with you. We would love to talk to you. Is so you, Pastor Ben.